What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Ponko Chicken. Ponko Chicken, if you did not already know, is a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine. Uh, there are stores, if you're not familiar, um, all around the Atlanta area. Uh, there's one in Marietta now. There's one in Buckhead. There's one in Shambly. There's one in uh, Midtown. They're popping up everywhere because Ponko is awesome and uh, they're like family. So um, go check out Ponko if you have not already. It is the home of the award-winning Japanese-American chicken tender. Just to brag on them a little bit more, they were Verizon Super Bowl Live top-selling vendor, three-peat Taste of Atlanta award winner, um, Midtown Alliance Best Taste winner. Just they won all the awards because Ponko is great and Ponko is delicious. So if you are in the Atlanta area and are looking to try something new and good and delicious, go check out Ponko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. Uh, also, if you have not already, go check out ChaseThomasPodcast.com. It's where all of my episodes to all of my podcasts are, all of my writing that I do, uh, more information on me and who I am um, and why you should be listening to this podcast and reading my work and all of that great stuff. Go do that. Go to Chase Thomas Podcast today. If you're an Apple podcast listener, go ahead and leave me five stars and a rating and a review. That's great. I need it. Um, it helps the show continue to grow and all of that good stuff. Um, you can listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, like I said, Apple, Google Play, everywhere where you can get your podcast, the Chase Thomas podcast will be there. So go do that today. Um, all right. I think that's everything. We can get into today's episode. Uncle Darren, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Welcome back to a Monday evening edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. I am now joined by a first timer. We're in the same area. We're uh, dealing with the same uh, craziness that is COVID-19 and reopening and what all that means for the city of Atlanta. But uh, Seku Smith is here. Seku, good evening, sir. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Chase. How are you? I'm hanging in there. What is it like uh, in your neck of the woods? Well, um, I, I live in Marietta, okay. um, about four miles from the square. So it's been strange for us because uh, this is usually a pretty busy part of Cobb County, of uh, Metro Atlanta. And it has been at a crawl, you know, for the last, the better part of the last seven weeks. Um, just this past weekend, I finally noticed maybe an uptick in activity and people out and about. I, I don't care what the governor has said. The people that live around here are kind of operating on their own, you know, set of rules. And um, it's been extremely slow compared to, to what we're used to. Yeah, I'm smack dab downtown walking distance of Piedmont Park. And it is, uh, I will say, uh, like, the weather is just people are are going to go out people are going to to do things and do whatever they want it's just every person's different and all you can really do is hope that your loved ones and your friends and everybody else stay safe and that uh, you follow what feels best to you but it is strange times um did you watch the last dance last night the final two two chapters yeah i watched uh i watched all 10 one hour you know, segments of the documentary, um, without fail. I mean, I was, I was tuned in, um, on a, uh, it's kind of like when I was a kid and we used to watch LA law on Thursday nights, you know, you, okay. you wait all week until it comes on, you know, and you kind of sit there parked in front of the TV for an hour. It was on this LA time. Law. It, Never watched it. It's an old shit. So you gotta be, you know, have, have watched TV in the eighties. Okay. Wasn't um, a lie. <laughs> Harry Hamlin, yeah, Harry Hamlin, and mm. it was it was a it was a blockbuster show. It was back in that era when Miami Vice was out, the Cosby okay. Show, when 
when there were certain nights of the week, you know, people congregated in front of the television in their home and, and watch shows. Um, it's, it's a foreign concept. I know for people who are younger, who, uh, who do don't do appointment viewing? You watch it when you feel like it because you DVR stuff or you stream, you know you stream stuff or you watch it later. Um, I'm still of that generation where I like to watch something when it comes on. Like, and if I don't catch it then, I kind of feel like the moment is past. And then you have this added pressure of feeling the need to watch it because someone's going to spoil it who just went over the weekend. So there's this thing where it's like, even if I want to take it slow and not go through Ozark all in one weekend, <laughs> I, I just know that in my personal life, there's going to be somebody who asked me about it, or I'm just going to overhear. Did you hear what happened in the final episode and blah, blah, blah. And then it's over. Um, it, it It's just, I agree with you that I miss breaking bad nights. I miss Thrones <laughs> nights. Like that was, that was really fun. And I love being able to lead, read like Andy Greedwall's piece in the morning or Mad Men. Uh, and um, what, I think it's Mark Lasanti of Grantland was doing that. The the power mm-hmm. rankings the next morning uh, right. for an episode of Mad Men. And those were great things because we were all watching together at the same time while this was happening live. And I think The Last Dance felt like that. We usually don't get stuff like that uh, for sports documentaries. But um, this leads me to a big question that I have, and I wonder if you've been thinking about this at all, but if the NBA is going on right now, if major league baseball is going on, if they're if training camp and the NFL is going, like if every, the MLS, whatever, if they're all going on as usual and the last dance comes on at the same time during the same last month uh, of time, mm-hmm. do you think we look at it as just this, glorious perfect documentary that was just worth our time for a month or is it that we were also starred for sports content that we we were maybe more generous and nicer about how this was all put together and just having this uh escape for two hours no i I don't think it's a matter of us having a different opinion about it i think it's a matter of how many eyes would have been on it yeah if 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 you know, if it was showing when it was originally scheduled to air, it was supposed to drop when there was less activity in the sports calendar. And because of the COVID-19, they moved it up and it became must-see viewing and had a captive audience. So I think it was a horrible situ- you know, set of circumstances that, that it had to be shifted to, to come out sooner. But it was very fortuitous for the, you know, for the filmmaker and for everybody involved that they ended up with a captive audience and, you know, basically owning the news cycle from the sun, you know, the Sunday morning until Tuesday afternoon, each of the past five weeks. Yeah. And it was nice. Like, it's one of those things you feel guilty about complaining about or having any kind of critical take of the subject matter or routes they took or, uh, how certain people are conveyed and <laughs> I, because you're just like, I'm just glad we have something <laughs> to occupy our time on Sunday nights. But um, in your estimation, who came out looking better after this was all said and done? And who came out looking worse? Hmm. Um, interesting question. Uh, I guess it depends on what your opinion was of these people prior to the start of the last dance. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's this idea that Jerry Krause got painted as a villain now is is hilarious to me because he was always cast as a villain. And, you know, in every conversation you've ever had with anybody about Jerry Krause, he was kind of, you know, cast as the guy who who screwed up the Bulls, you know, who derailed the opportunity to maybe chase a seventh championship or was always there, you know, uh, as the antagonist, you know, to the, to the other people. Um, I think Scottie Pippen's legacy for a lot of people is, is under a different light right now. When you look at some of the missteps he had as a player, I mean, I know there's a generation of NBA players who grew up idolizing Scottie Pippen because as much as you like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen was maybe more relatable for a large swath of six foot four to six foot six, eight, you know, guys who 
dreamed a little dream as kids and grew up and actually made their way to the NBA and couldn't aspire to be Michael Jordan per se. Once they got there, once they realized that, you know, Jordan was on a, a different level, but Scottie Pippen kind of became the patron saint of long athletic swingmen for a few generations. And I think his, his reputation took some, you know, took some hits throughout the course of the last dance. I think, Strangely enough, the guy who ends up looking much better, given his his last go round in the league, is Phil Jackson. Um, there were not rave reviews about Phil after his time in New York, but this this was a reminder of just how great a coach he was at that stage of his career, and certainly after that when he's with the Lakers. But it also kind of washed away some of the stain of his time as a front office man in New York, where. Strangely enough, nobody's talking about it. He didn't seem to learn a lot of lessons of how, you know, to avoid the mistakes that Jerry Krause made when he was in charge of Chicago. I think he was just tired. Remember that photo of him just <laughs> napping at a, watching some practice? Like, I think he was just, he took the money. And I think he, he would never admit that, but he was content in retirement. And then they were like, here is this boatload of money. Go do your thing. And, uh, put your face on stuff and go watch some some overseas stuff go hire kurt rambis do whatever you got to do but um we we trust you and i think phil was just checked out and he got all the money he got more security like it was just i don't know i think it was a different phil like if you listen to those press conferences and you listen to phil from the next time versus just his animation in those bulls years it's just different like he's just he seems like a 30 years younger guy and i think it's just it's interesting to look at the dichotomy between the two but it's almost like a different person where they just got someone extremely late in the game um did you ever talk to Krause at all did you when when you say that he had that stigma around the league during the time um when you talked to other reporters about him was he just uh, was it behind the scenes everybody was grumbling about him too or was it um uh most no, uh, stuff yeah it wasn't behind any scene i mean it was he had a reputation as uh, you know as a guy that people didn't like and he didn't he didn't have a very healthy trust factor with the media not even the chicago media that that dealt with him on a regular basis and that's tough you know because for better or worse during his era you know the the media shaped you know reputations and legacies um it's a different landscape now with social media and all the different outlets that players have at their disposal but at that time you know if the the narrative was you were a jerk or a bad person or not good at your job or whatever and it became the prevailing wisdom uh, you know as disseminated by the quote-unquote media that was pretty hard to shake. You didn't have the outlets to change minds um, the way you do now or to, to set the record straight the way people do now with all of the, you know, media access you can have as a player, a coach, a front office, an owner, whoever you are. You can you can just look at the Twitter feeds or the social media feeds for some of these high-profile athletes and other people involved in these sports, and it's it's – the reach is tremendous. It's outstanding how far you can spread whatever message you want to spread. So Krauss was a villain and it was well-earned. And I think it was pretty concrete, you know, in terms of the the, the way people felt about him. Yeah. Um, and your point about Scotty, I think is correct because I, I think he came out the biggest winner and I wonder if Michael sees it the same way, because obviously he signed off on everything. So just the emphasis on the back and the images of him strolling up the court and just making sure that people look at Scotty differently than how they did before um, all this went down and just thinking about him refusing to go back in and just forgetting that part and remembering that this guy was a co-star, not a sidekick to LeBron. I mean, to LeBron, to Michael and, uh, that he gutted it out um, when a lot of people wouldn't because lower back pain is... Uh, it's, it's very difficult to play high-level basketball with uh, back issues, uh, I would I would assume. And he gutted it out, and he did it his best, and you know he won all those rings with Michael, and Michael would not have won them without Scotty. But I, I think 
Rodman comes out neutral. I think Phil comes out neutral. I think Reinsdorf somehow, after 20 years, comes out even worse. Like, I can't believe that was the best <laughs> answer he could have mustered up after just decades of time to think about his answer. Uh, pretty pretty interesting that that's what they got out of him, and Michael's reaction was, was great. Um, but yeah, and then the Steve Kerr stuff, I think, was just a home run, and it was interesting that, and not really surprising that Steve and Michael never really talked about that kind of stuff because the other big thing we learned from this documentary is Michael's not going to be vulnerable. That's never going to happen is he's never really, we saw some teary eyed stuff, but like not really vulnerable, like the family stuff, the ex-wife stuff, the dad's like, there's still a level that he's just not going to peel behind that curtain. And it doesn't surprise me in the moment in the nineties that Steve and him are going to have like a heart to heart about all that kind of stuff. It, it doesn't surprise me. I think uh, you have to remember what type of celebrity status Michael Jordan has had right. for the last, you know, 35 years. It's, there are celebrities, there are stars, there are superstars, you know I mean? There are public figures. And then there's like that one, you know, percent of the 1% who live in a celebrity fishbowl that we couldn't fathom. You know, there's, there are only so many famous people that could literally go to any corner of the universe and get recognized. You know, if you're Michael Jordan, there's not, where could you possibly go and somebody didn't notice you? Not just because you, you're, you know, 6'6 six, six and 200 and however many pounds he is now, and you, you're, you're a large human being, but it's because the iconic face, the bald head, the, you know what I mean? Like, He's instantly recognizable for anybody on planet Earth who's paid two seconds worth of attention, you know, to sports and pop culture for the, you know, American pop culture, at least, but sports globally for the last 30 years. I mean, it's, I can't imagine, and, and I told somebody this, I can't imagine doing anything as intrusive as a as ten hours of examination of my life, right? Twenty two years ago and beyond, in that kind of fashion. I mean, could you? It, it would be tough to even admit to some of the stuff you see yourself do, even if even if it wasn't negative, right? It would be hard to watch it back. So, I mean, I give Michael Jordan a lot of credit. I know people have taken shots at him for wondering what his motives were to do this now, but when you're that famous. And, you know, your legacy will be parsed by millions and millions of people. Everybody's going to have an opinion. The the vanity project that is having one, you know, opportunity to really nail how you want to, you know, frame your own legacy. I, I think that's an opportunity a lot of people would take. Um, and so I'm not I'm not mad at Michael Jordan at all for sharing what he did or not sharing other parts of his life because he's, you know, those are choices everybody has to make. And when you live in, in this, that rarefied air that he's always lived in since he came onto the scene, basically in college, that shot he made in North Carolina was going to be it. He was going to be talked about for the rest of his life. Even if it was just in Chapel Hill, if he never did squat in the NBA, he would have been talked about forever in Chapel Hill. So think about the magnitude of the fame we're talking about. That's um, We're talking Michael Jackson, you know, that kind of fame. Yeah. Um, Tiger Woods is in that category because I've seen his name pop up a lot of like, who is the only other superstar athlete that would we really, really want to see a 10 part series about. But I think what this has taught us is that I, I think we're good. I, I don't need a Tiger Woods documentary <laughs> that he signs off on. I don't think it'd be that interesting because the most interesting thing about Tiger Woods is all the stuff that he doesn't want to talk about. And he yeah. shouldn't, which is what you point to, which I wouldn't want to do if that was a part of my personal life. I wouldn't want to dissect that. Like you say, like it's not, it, it only, I don't see how it helps you. I don't see how it um, can be enjoyable. Like who in their right mind would sign off on just a, a brutal honest just an analyzing your life your personal life some of your yeah. worst or best moments like the reason the oj stuff and bill Simmons made a great point about this was that the reason that that was able to be so good and be so honest is that no one cares about 
OJ Simpson's like personal life and whether or not he's pissed that this all comes out. Um, no one like it, there's nothing to lose there. Um, well, I mean, I think there's also the factor of with OJ's situation, and I thought that documentary, and I met the the guy who made it once. Um, really? Yeah, I, I met him in an elevator, which was cool. <laughs> I wanted to give him a hug because we, you know, we were like, "Man, how good was it?" You know, and I I could tell he felt embarrassed. You know, another another person who prior to that might not have been instantly recognizable, but because of what of something he did, he became much more famous. Yeah. Um, but OJ's thing, the, the thing about that OJ documentary, which was fab, fabulous, was there's a difference between being a willing participant and being a, a fellow consumer of what's been done. OJ mm-hmm. didn't, the, the idea that Michael Jordan would not only greenlight whatever was done in the last dance, but be a participant. That, to me, that's what set this apart. There have been plenty of people who have been the subjects of documentaries and not participated mm-hmm. as intimately as Michael Jordan did in not just what he would allow or not allow to be shown, but willing to subject himself to questions that required answers for what was being shown. That's that's very rare that, that we've seen something like this about anybody as as ultra famous as he is, or you know, or at least while they're still alive. Like I watched a recently watched a, a a documentary on, I think it was HBO about Natalie Wood. And they used all this footage, interviews that she'd done. Talk, you know, her daughter and, and Robert Wagner, ex, you know, her husband, when she died, they were the they were central figures in the documentary. And I was thinking, yeah, I, I get that they have these people involved, but she's gone. So she's not she's not there to give you the kind of perspective that Michael Jordan was able to give us, at least from from his perspective, what was his thinking or what was his interpretation of what happened throughout the course of the years the last dance was dealing with? And again, that's what to me set it apart from other documentaries I've seen. That's a fair point. Um we have to talk about the Knicks. They made a big <laughs> hire today, guy with the jazz of twenty years. Um people are praising this move they're retaining scott perry in a weird role where i i don't know what to make of his longevity there i honestly thought steve mills was going to be in that front office for the rest of his life i i could not believe that that actually happened because steve mills just shout out to him for staying around for as long as he did um it was impressive um and then we just forgot that david blatt was just an advisor briefly like a lot of weird stuff in the knicks front office uh per usual but it looks like Leon Rose is putting together. It kind of reminds me of what Detroit did. Um, a, a team mm-hmm. you're very familiar with where they built this in-house group around their former player agent turned a uh, guy who runs everything else with Stavansky coming in. And they had a cap guru that I'm blanking on his name. He just left, but they, they added a lot of different people. I think Malik Rose is in that front office, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mm-hmm. They added a lot of people and a lot of different smart people. And it's just, it's interesting. Um, the Knicks, I think are trying to do the same sort of thing by adding a lot of different people into this front office and having a lot of different voices. And it's not just going to be like a Phil Jackson calling the shots by himself. Like Leon Rose might be the final decision maker, but he's not going to be doing this alone. It's not going to be a one man shop. And I think that's smart, but I also wonder like bringing in this jazz guy Walt um, to be the assistant. Well, Perrin, yeah, he's fantastic, man. He's a, he's one of one of the great guys you meet in this business. And, so you know uh, him. What do you know about him? Just know that he's been around the league for years, and he's been super well respected um, by his peers. But but so is Scott Perry, and and so are a lot of people. And I think the one thing we we need to keep in mind about any of these organizations is. And we were talking about the last dance earlier. This is what rings true about what was said. If you think an organization and its structure and its foundation and its front office and its owner and all these things, I mean, if, if you think those are the things that will enable you to be successful and you pour your resources and energy into that, I think you find out pretty quickly that all of those things 
with the absence of a transcendent player or group of players, it's really difficult to build a sustainable, successful franchise. Um, I, re- I remember laugh- people laughing at Joe Lacob when he was talking about the Warriors organization being light years ahead of everybody else. Well, you can afford to, to talk like that when you have transcendent talent on hand and players the caliber the Warriors had at that time and would go on to acquire, obviously, and Kevin Durant and others. But if, if you haven't figured this out, out by now, Chase, and, I, and I'm, I'm not pouring cold water on Knicks fans, but I'm only saying this to state the obvious. Um, you, can do, you can make all the front office moves you want, but until you get players whose talent rises above the level of just being standard NBA players, and we're talking about 400-plus of the greatest basketball players at any given time on the planet Earth. But there's a there's a hierarchy amongst those guys. And if you don't have the right ones, you can have all the front office structure in the world. And it's not going to change the DNA of your organization. You know, so you can those guys being in place is fantastic. But if you don't marry it with the right kind of player acquisition, you don't have the right kind of players to breathe life into whatever your ecosystem is. You're going to have a very hard time being successful in the NBA. If you had to suspect whether or not uh, Perrin took this job because he was maybe not promised, but uh, there, it was heavily implied that this would uh, eventually be a GM job in a couple of years, what would, what would be your guess? Or do you think this is a real, a real situation of Perry and uh, Perrin working together long term? I don't think anything's long term in the NBA. You know, <laughs> yeah. I just I just don't. I mean, I, I know better. Um, but I think, you know, if you lure somebody to your organization, there usually has to be an intersection of opportunity and growth potential that they see, whether it's a guy who finally feels like he's reached a pinnacle and he becomes a GM. But a lot of times you become that that title but you don't end up with the decision-making power you thought you were going to have as a GM. So that's something that's very specific that the, you know, these guys have to consider behind the scenes. Like, you know, there are guys who take GM jobs and go into it knowing full well, they're not going to be the ultimate decision-maker. Oftentimes your owner is going to be the guy who makes that decision or whoever the owner empowers within the organization. And sometimes it's not you, even if you're the GM. Sometimes it's someone else. So I I think, you know, I don't cock an eyebrow wondering about anybody's motives for moving around the league the way they do. I only consider the move itself and then whatever comes of that move. Like I'll I'll be able to better evaluate why Walpair made that move and if it was the right move based on the success they do or do not have in New York. That's fair. I I just think it's nice that they're doing baby steps and that what's interesting is Knicks fans are just so beaten down at the moment, I think, that these moves, it's just cautious optimism. But I, you, I think you have to start here. Whenever you're like, it's painful to start here, but the Bulls just did it by bringing in um, Arturis from uh, Denver they're changing gears after the Garpax 20 year reign. Like mm-hmm. it, it's just going to be painful for a little bit. And it's painful for the NBA that two, their two biggest markets outside of LA are going through, are like basically starting over and having to rebuild their front office um, from scratch again. But it, it's the only way to build it. Like the, the warriors had to start with Lacob and then Bob Myers and have the right people in place so that you can get the right players in place because if you have the right players but not the right front office then we still know that's not going to lead to the desired results um so it, i think you have to crawl before you walk and i think the knicks deserve credit for starting to build a competent front office for the first time in a while and this is this is baby steps i i i like it and i also think what makes <laughs> this interesting too is the nets are also under new ownership um but they have all these expectations, the expectations that the Knicks have just lived with year after year. 
Knicks are they're just in the RJ Barrett experience. Like Knicks fans lose their mind for Mitchell Robinson. Like it's dark times, but it's also just like who cares? We're not playing for anything at the moment. We have ninety three power forwards. We're we're good for right now. Um, the Nets are now big game hunting. They they have Kevin Durant. They have Kyrie Irving. They have this weird collection of guys who were the the D team All Stars last year that are leftovers. And you have um, guys on the team just saying that they're like Kyrie, just being like, yeah, most of these guys probably aren't going to be here <laughs> long term, like current teammates, because Kyrie is Kyrie. But um, in your estimation, which do you think is the better job? I pe- I posed this question to the Washington Post Ben Golliver last week, and we mm-hmm. actually agreed that the Knicks' job might be better than the Nets' job right now, and that if you're a coach that wants to have some jobs carried, that wants to be around for a little bit, that wants to get some sleep at night, the Nets' job is not for you because I I think there's a strong case that that job is awful and that they're going to get passed over by some really good coaches like we were laughing because like Ty Lue makes the most sense there but Ty Lue has had like one of the most stressful coaching careers in the NBA of recent memory in my opinion just what all he put up with starting off with Blatt and the weird hiring process there and then just what he dealt with coaching uh, the team like Kyrie and LeBron and all the expectations there winning a title and then being scapegoated after LeBron left and then just they left him with nothing in a dysfunctional front office and dysfunctional ownership group. Like he's been through it all. He's seen everything. Um, and he'd just be walking back into the fire again. And I don't necessarily want to throw him back in there because he seems like a good dude. Um, would you agree the next job is not a great one? The, the Nets job is not great. Yes. Mm. I never really looked at it like that. Um, I think it's a very, High risk, high reward opportunity. Yeah. Um, but if if I'm a coach, now we're talking about a coach strictly. This is just like what kind of job is a good for coach. coach? Yeah. If you're a good coach, do you want the yeah. next job? Yes, okay. um, because you have to remember, in, in the psychology of a coach, you're not you're not going in to build a program that lasts for ten years. You're going in to build something that wins today. And gives you the best opportunity to chase whatever the highest rung of success you can attain is. So a coach goes into a job looking at which team, you know, is this team ready to compete at a high level right now? Well, yeah, that's a great opportunity for a coach. Is it a is it a sound, uh, mentally healthy or emotionally healthy opportunity? Maybe not. But maybe you're a coach like many many of these guys in this business. Maybe you're one of those guys who who thrives on living on that edge and, and having that extra amount of pressure to get this thing right. And you, and you work better under the, under the weight of that pressure. So I think the way we look at it from the outside of what's a better opportunity or better situation, the, you know, we look at it and say, we think, well, the Knicks don't have the added pressure of being competitive right now that the Nets have. But the Knicks have the the eternal pressure of being a flagship institution in a market where no matter what the Nets do, they're playing catch up to whatever the Knicks are expected to do in the minds of the millions of people who root for them. And that's a very delicate balancing act if you're a coach. If you're a coach and you walk into that Knicks locker, you look around Mr. Robinson and I got young R.J. Baird who could be something special. And I got all these things that could be. And then I go across to Brooklyn and I walk into uh, a Nets locker room that has one guy who's been a two-time finals MVP, a two-time champion, is one of the greatest players the game's ever seen. The other guy is a champion who hit a game-winning shot to end a 52-year championship drought in Cleveland and might be prickly as hell to deal with, but is no doubt one of the best talents in the game. If I'm arrogant, like I think most of these coaches are, and I don't mean arrogant in a bad way. I just mean arrogant and confident in a way that you have to be to put yourself in that kind of line of work. Like Doc Rivers. 
and we don't mean that negative. Like tonight, he yeah. revealed that he took the Clippers job arrogantly. Like he was like, I can yeah. do this. I can fix this. And that story, yes. by the way, folks, if you have uh, just another <laughs> wrinkle of just insanity from Donald Sterling, but that yeah. it speaks to what you're saying. It's just, yeah, I mean, there's just, just a, arrogant. there's a level of arrogance and confidence that kind of is intertwined that it's the reason why you, you mentioned Phil Jackson earlier. He didn't just come back for the money, which is a huge part of it. He came back to be the, to run the Knicks front office because of that confidence slash arrogance, that cosmic mix of those things that, that takes someone who's been successful and reminds them and then convinces them, hey, you can do this because you've done it before. You can do this because you've you've held that trophy. You you know what it feels like to go through what it takes to go through to reach that pinnacle. And I would, I would argue that if you held those two jobs up to five quality coaching candidates and they, and they were honest about what lies ahead, like what challenges lie ahead in both those situations, they would err on the side of, or not, not err. I think, I think the right way to say it is they would choose the opportunity to compete at a championship level sooner rather than later. Interesting. Yeah, I would. I guess we'll have to see. But like, I can go ahead and x off Jeff Van Gundy. I think there is a zero percent chance he's <laughs> signing up to coach Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Like, I just I think it's going to be interesting because I I really think it's going to be an, a surprise guy that they end up bringing on. We're like, really? That's who they're that's who they're doing? Because I think like ultimately the plan here is. Kevin and Kyrie are going to coach this team. Like they are the de facto coach and you have to get someone in there who is just very much okay with playing second fiddle to his own team. Like I think yeah. that is part of the gig. And I think if you're an arrogant coach, which I, Jeff Van Gundy, he has a right to be. He's like, nah, I, I'm good. I'm going to keep calling ESPN games. But if you're like Mark Jackson, who is dying to get back in the league, you're like, well, this is the way back in. And, I think yeah. I think I think if we assume that things play out that way, though, let's let's ask ourselves to study the history of this league, at least recently, and and examine who is offered and and accepts the opportunities to coach teams in this league, and then who ultimately wins championships. Think about the coaches. Ask yourself the the Nick Nurses of the world. To me, are are far more rare than some of the more obvious candidates that we end up seeing take those jobs and and ultimately have success. I mean, how many current coaches in the league have won championships? It's, it's such a short list, you know, that there are no variables on there. There aren't any wild cards on there. Nick Nurse is the closest thing we have to a wild card, and he's an absolute coaching lifer. Yeah, he's cut his teeth at every possible level you could cut it so yeah the Kawhi stuff could have easily gone the david blatt lebron stuff like there was exactly. it could have easily gone the other way exactly i think about the rick carlisle's yeah the doc rivers the tyloos you know i mean people who have some championship stain on them at some point are the ones who tend to rise to those jobs and to those moments it's i don't think it's a coincidence that there's a very small club of guys who have won championships in the NBA. Like, they're really good coaches who haven't sniffed a championship. The only time they see Larry O'Brien and somebody else is holding them up. <laughs> okay. Well, you know. well, don't tear Ernie Grunfeld when he's down. He's he's minding his own <laughs> business somewhere. Who knows where Ernie Grunfeld is? But uh, he's, he did his best. It's, I mean, it's just, I'm just saying, I'm pointing out how extremely difficult it is to win. Ernie Grunfeld, by the way, what am I thinking? At a championship Randy level. Whitman. I'm losing yeah. my mind. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just true. There's a very what a what an unbelievable line to cross when you actually. Why do you think? I was thinking about this watching. You know, going back to the last dance, I was thinking about this. Why these players? Every time they when somebody wins a championship for that first time, they cry and fall out, and as if they didn't. You know, as if we haven't seen it a million times. But it's when you put in the type of work that it takes to do that, the emotional release after you do it makes more sense to me after each year goes by and somebody different wins a championship. Like the reaction LeBron had the first time he won a championship. Think about the work that went into it 
leading up to it. You know, think about Michael Jordan and those championships he won, the way he cherished each and every one of them. But the emotional release each time was something different. It was unique to that journey, that season, whatever. You know, there's a there's something about it, Chase, that I don't think we we kind of become immune to it as observers. But I think when you're in it and you've invested what these guys have invested in it, it makes more sense to me psychologically watching it, especially in hindsight, like uh, to go back and watch a championship celebration. I think about Kevin Garnett in Boston. You know what I mean? There's something unique about that moment that speaks to the journey that these guys go on in their pursuit of it. And some guys have never done, I mean, great, great, all-time great players have never had that moment. So that, that tells you about how hard it is to attain for the guys who do and do it just once, let alone the guys who have done it multiple times. Especially when your prime coincides with uh, Michael Jordan's prime. Uh, or the or the Warriors or yeah. the Showtime Lakers or the, you know what I mean? There are a lot of guys sitting on the sidelines wishing they'd had one of those moments that didn't because somebody else was just better. Yeah, they wanted the Dirk moment where they just things happen at the right time, lockout short in season, a new super team, LeBron figuring stuff out, like everything worked out for Dirk that year. Um Nash never had that moment with the Suns. He came close. Um the tip in by our test, everything uh, upended that, but like yeah, a lot of it's luck and a lot of it's just being at the right place at the right time, but it is interesting. It's the reason that uh, we love basketball. Speaking of things that happen at the right time and uh, luck and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. Jason Tatum um, appeared on a podcast, All the Smoke, this week mm-hmm. and uh, revealed that he wanted to go to the Suns. And I, not often do you hear <laughs> a, a basketball player say he would like to go to the Phoenix Suns and go play for Robert Sarver. But um, he did. And his point though like if people actually read it you're like okay i get this if you read why it's not about basketball reasons it's not about playing with devin booker it was my mom would like it out here and i would like to get a place and have a pool and live in this kind of weather (laughs) and when his agent told him no boston's really into you when they're gonna go with you at three he's like i I don't want to live in boston year round like it's really just a living thing and um that made a lot more sense with the context but uh, what did you make of jason tatum revealing that because i'm sure Danny Ainge, not a fan of that text message he got. Hey, Jason's talking this week. You might want to look into this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, if we want these guys to be honest, and he was talking about what his what his view of it was as, what, an 18-year-old kid yeah. from St. Louis after one year at Duke or whatever. You know, I mean, no offense to Jason Tatum, but if, you, you know, if you ask me my opinion about something, when I was that age, good Lord, what the answer I might have given, you know, a couple <laughs> years later. I, I think it's interesting, though, it, it, what today's climate has done around the league and around sports in general with social media and everything else has humanized these guys. There are things that come out of their mouths that we can digest now that we really had no outlet for um, as recently as 10, 15 years ago. So, I mean, I, I think it's kind of interesting, though, that 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 would be on the mind of a kid who was on a track that he was on, which Jason Timms was number ranked player in his class, you know, in, in his high school career. So he was basically on that can't miss trajectory to be in the NBA. And, and if you, the, the thing about any sports league is if you want to be a high pick, you know, number one pick or top three pick, you tend to know that you're going to a place that won't provide what Boston has made him early in his career, which is a platform to be on a winning team, to be an all-star, to be, you know, to be in highly competitive situations. So if I'm Jason Tatum and I'm 18 and I'm doing the math and looking at Wikipedia and figuring out where the best climate is and, you know, all that good stuff, I could see where you would weigh Boston and Phoenix and say, you know what, Phoenix doesn't look so bad just from a living standpoint. Um, but yeah, it, the, the the infrastructure and the platform that he was provided in Boston compared to what's in Phoenix right now for a bat, you know, for an NBA player, it's not even close. But this is also why 
Boston doesn't get free agents. Like this is something that is instructive, I think, to NBA fans when you look at like why certain cities don't get free agents and why it's team building is different from city to city. Like the Houston Rockets had to trade for James Harden. Like there are certain teams that have to operate in a different playing field. Like the Atlanta Hawks team that we're both familiar with, like they're you're never going to sign prime Tracy McGrady. Like you're never going to be able to win that kind of battle. And I understand the landscape's kind of changed a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's still very, very unlikely that you can win that way. So you either have to win through the draft or you have to win through um, really, really smart trading. And that both are very risky. Both end up fail- with failure most of the time because most people it doesn't work out. There's only eight to nine guys that matter in a given NBA season. Like they're the ones mm-hmm. who move the needle. Like most teams do not have that guy. It's really hard. Being an NBA team is really hard. I've talked to a lot of them. It's tough. A lot of it is just, we'll never see light of day, but trades that do happen, trades that almost happen, like the Celtics, what happens if they had just taken Markel Fultz? What does the NBA look like for the last four years? Does Markel still have everything going on? Like there's all kinds of what ifs that uh, come up with this kind of stuff. But I, I think it's interesting because I think Tatum is not alone in that feeling of like, Guys, I mean, Kyrie didn't enjoy it. Kyrie didn't enjoy Boston. Like, I think there's a lot of superstar athletes that um, will never choose to live in Boston year-round. Like, the, Phoenix will always have a little bit of an advantage with the taxes and everything else, but also the good weather. Like, people are going to be more likely to sign with Phoenix than they are in Boston, not because they're a better organization, but because it's a better place to live. Like, LA will always have that advantage. They will always have it over people. Miami will always have that advantage. Players are not going to sign up to Boston. They're going to have to get drafted there or traded there. You're going to have to force KG to Boston. You're not going to sign KG out of nothing. Like that's, that's just the way it is. But they've acknowledged it, and I think that uh, is my biggest takeaway from the, the Tatum stuff. <laughs> well, I think it's human nature. I mean, right. think about it. Um, if somebody offers you and, – and this is what, the, what we're talking about, basically. Jason Tatum's salary – effectively will be the same in Boston as it is in Phoenix. Mm -hmm. So somebody offers you your dream job, basically, and says, well, where would you want to go? Well, yeah, I mean, 85% of people are going to say, you know, whatever the best locale, the best climate, LA, you know, you say, or Miami, like you mentioned. But these guys don't operate in that realm until they're seven years, technically, you know, most of the time until they're seven years into their career. So the the where you might want to go as, as a rookie and then where you might want to go in free agency based on the opportunities that are afforded you and, you know, based on what the landscape looks like at that time is completely different. Um, I, I think the luring free agents to markets, certain markets is a different conversation that is much more complex than what we're talking about. Um, because you're, you're talking about a recruiting process that has to go on that is, is independent of, of strictly the, the nuts and bolts components of making a lifestyle choice of where you'd want to live. Um, you know, a lot of people don't comprehend what kind of lifestyle you can live in Boston if you're of the means that these players would be. Um, but it, and a lot of times that doesn't matter. You know, Kawhi Leonard had his, think about the number of guys who have their pick of where they'd like to go in free agency. And you're right. They always end up choosing the same markets. And that's, it's because of a, the market itself, not as a basketball plans market, but the market, like if you have a choice between Los Angeles in Cleveland, and you're going to make $130 million, well, where do you think you're going to choose? Like, what would lead you to choose Cleveland over L.A. if you had that choice? So I don't, I don't, I don't indict, I just don't indict cities for, for being who and what they are. It's like Boston can't help itself. Boston is what it is. And I happen to think Boston's an outstanding town. I've never lived there. But I've been there countless times over the years, spent long periods of time there covering playoff series, what have you. It, you know, what a, if you like history and culture and all the sorts of things and you can withstand the climate, mm-hmm. Boston is awesome. But that, but a 19 year old kid 
who might be from the other side of the world or the other side of the country who's got very different, you know, uh, goals and standards for what they, they need to be comfortable living somewhere. We have a very different opinion of Boston probably than I would or you would because our, our sensibilities are going to be different. Our understanding of what that city provides as a professional athlete and what it provides as somebody who lives and works in a place where they want to feel good about what they're doing and where they are are totally different. He should be grateful that he did not end up in Phoenix. Um, <laughs> just, I think about... First of the takeaway, you're right. That's the final takeaway. I mean, <laughs> the difference of him learning behind Devin Booker and playing without a point guard for a year and just going coach after coach, the instability, he lucked out. I mean, even Philly, I don't know how that would have gone with Embiid and Simmons. Like, he's in the perfect situation to become an MVP. Like there is a real chance with the way he played this year for him to eventually get to that level. Like his step back side to side three is, is wild. Like he's, he's there. He's a good defender. He's a two way player that will be in the MVP conversation one day. That does not happen probably in, in uh, Phoenix. And I wonder if he ever becomes the, the alpha of that team in Phoenix or it's always Devin Booker's like, no, 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 this is, this is my thing. And, uh, you can play second field to me. Like I, it, it was just a blessing for him to end up in Boston. So I'm sure it. Uh, looking back, he'll maybe think that way. But I understand where he's coming from. But uh, for him and for me as a basketball fan, I'm very much glad that he is a Boston Celtic and not a Phoenix Sun because I think his career goes very differently, as it does for a lot of guys based on where they're drafted. Um, some guys are going to be great wherever. LeBron was going to be great wherever. But that's not the case for most most guys. And uh, he lucked out, I think. Um, last thing, and then I want to wrap up here. Sure. John Collins. Hawks fans and I disagree a lot on the direction <laughs> of this team, on the direction of this franchise, of this team-building strategy that they're doing right now. I, John Collins wants the max. Every good player wants the max. I think basketball mm-hmm. players and human beings just want more money if offered. Mm-hmm. So they're going to push for more money. Yes. John Collins is not a max player. Most bigs are not max players in today's NBA. Like you have to be Joel Embiid, Nik- Nikola Jokic. You have to be in this unbelievable category to get in that. The Draymond Green stuff. Like you have to be in this very unicorn like level to mm-hmm. get in that category of like you're worth a max because it's just you're not going to get the touches you're not going to have the impact that guards and wings have like it's just it's really hard to get there John Collins is not a max player John Collins has a lot of reason to push for the max there because the Hawks are building something and he is a important part of what they're building and him and Trey clearly are, are comfortable with each other they're better with each other on the floor Collins has learned how to shoot threes like he is He's a rebounding machine. Like his offensive rebounding is wild. He also got suspended this year to start the season. Like he almost like if this is a normal season and they play it out, like there's a chance Lloyd Pierce doesn't make it out. And part of that could have been because Collins selfishly got suspended early in the season. Like that was just a dumb thing. And Trey needed him like this. What the GM did this summer by not bringing anybody in, letting Dwayne Dedman go counting on Alex Lynn, like putting Trey in a position where his usage rates 33%, which is bad for all the young players around him, bad for Trey, bad habits. Like it, mm-hmm. it's just been a mess to me. And I, I don't think you can go into the next couple of years. Like we got to pay John Collins, but like you're gonna have to pay Trey. We're going to see what happens with Herder. You are betting on Cam Reddish being great because you gave up Luca for the Cam Reddish factor. You have Deandre Hunter. You trade it up for you have another lottery pick on the way. You might have Anthony Edwards in the fold. That's another max contract in the next couple of years. Like you have to be thinking they have so many young guys that they might have to pay that you can't pay Clint Capella and John Collins a bunch of money over the next three to four years. You can't. So when you absorb Capella's contract, to me, that was a signal Collins is gone. Like you cannot pay both of them in the modern NBA. That is insanity. I don't, you can't do it. But if you're John Collins, you're like, I'm a good player. I'm a 2010 guy, blah, blah, blah. Someone's going to pay him like the magic might pay him, but like the Hawks, I don't think can, and I don't think they should. Is that, is that Mm -hmm. a fair assessment right now? 
Yes, as a spot-on assessment. What what is it that you and Hawks fans are arguing about there? Well, Hawks fans are very high on Trey. Very, Mm -hmm. very high on Trey. And they're very high on John Collins being a future All-Star. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to happen. I could be wrong. But I think they're betting on too many young guys, and they didn't sign enough veterans. That's part of the reason they were just so bad, is they had nobody to play. Like, Vince Carter fell off a cliff, but he's, he's older. Like, they didn't do Trey any services by not spending the money they have just so much cap space and they they're throwing these young guys into the fire with no backup like it's just it's bad like trey not having a backup point guard forever like there is just so many things about this hawks rebuild that scare me and hawks fans are very excited about where they're going they're very excited about trey being a future all-star and like the trey steph stuff which drives me up the wall um (laughs) just up the wall i hate it so much like trey young fans are the most annoying fans on planet earth. Like Hawks fans are <laughs> turning into Trey stands. And I I just, I'll mention that he's going to be unplayable in the final two minutes of his first playoff game. Like he is the worst defensive real plus minus in the NBA back to back seasons. Like he cannot fix his size. Like he is not going to get bigger. He is going to get murdered on pick and rolls for the rest of his career. Like he is a small basketball player. Steph Curry was shooting 45% from three his rookie year. Trey was shooting 32%, I want to say. Like, they're just not the same player. They're just not. Like, Trey is going to be a multi-time all-star. That's great. You cannot build around Trey Young. And I think that's the biggest disconnect with me and Hawks fans. Is I, I don't think you can beat... Like, best case scenario is James Harden. But I don't think that's going to be enjoyable to watch over an eight-year stretch. Mm-hmm. Um, I just... I'm not a fan. And you know what would have been great if you're Travis Slink? And perfect job security for him and Lloyd Pierce, who I like a lot? Just drafting Luka. Because you know who's going to be a GM and a head coach ten years from now? Rick Carlisle and Donnie Nelson. They're good. Like, Luca's <laughs> probably winning MVP next year. They're going to be okay. They're going to have jobs. The Mavericks are going to be in the playoffs for the next 10 years. They are going to be a consistent playoff team. They're fine. They have Euro LeBron. Like, the Hawks just had him. I'll never forgive them. Ever. <laughs> Ever. I remember where I was when they traded Luca for that Trey Young pick. And look, maybe Cam Reddish turns out to be Paul George, and it's fine. I, I just think they're adding so many young guys and that fans are not thinking about the, the costs and the what they're going to run into with the amount of money they have to spend this summer because they just have a bunch of money right. uh, that they can dish out. But they also have a bunch of young guys who are going to come up for deals in the next couple seasons. You cannot yep. pay all these guys. You have to start figuring out who stays and who goes. And they also still might end up with the number one pick this summer. Like, I'm just concerned. And I don't, I think this Colin stuff has the potential to get ugly. Hmm. I, you know, it'll be interesting. They, I think they put themselves in a very. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, I can tell. I like it. I like it. I, I can see them being in a very precarious position, though, because as you mentioned before, luring free agents here is going to be a very tricky thing for them with Trey Young already here. You know, and I mean that by saying, what marquee free agent is going to want to come here when they know Trey's got the ball in his hands already? Um, so that's going to be a challenge. You're going to have to find the kind of free agents, if you if you go that route, that are willing to play alongside Trey as opposed to coming in here and being the center of attention and being the, the catalyst for this team. So, and we have, you know, and that's with a complete understanding, I'm sure everybody has, that Trey is a max player, or at least people yeah. think, you he's know. getting the max. The yeah. Hawks are max. He's got to get the max from the Hawks. Comes yeah. That's happening. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but that is the that is the mystic beauty of trying to build a roster, um, you know. And, and you can't go off somebody else's blueprint because just because Steph Curry worked in Golden State and every possible thing that could have happened that, that benefited the Warriors happened early in his career. His ankle issues suppressed the you know the contract he signed and. That allowed them to do things with Draymond and then Clay that they wouldn't normally be able to do. You got a you get a salary cap spike one summer and allows you to do what you did with Kevin Durant. Andre Godala had to get signed again. I mean, there's all these. If you're looking, if you're the Hawks and Hawks fans, and you're looking at somebody else's roster and blueprint and using player comps to tell yourself that what happened there can happen here based on what you're watching. That that doesn't work. The parameters are always changing. The specifics 
to one situation are always going to be what they are in one place and not necessarily transferable somewhere else. Do you know how many teams died in the water trying to do what the Spurs did or what the, you know, what, what some other team that seemed like they built something organically and put all these pieces together when in fact there was two tons of blind luck involved and, yeah. uh, and a, you know, some serendipity that they had nothing to do with that affected their situation. If you're Hawk, if you're Hawks fans, what you have to do is hold on to hope that at least three of your young guys, and I mean all those guys who've been drafted in the last three years, three of them are home run keepers. Not necessarily max contract players, but just franchise keepers. Guys that you're comfortable with in the organization for double-digit seasons, paying them whatever it takes to pay them to keep them a part of your organization. If you do that, that at least gives you the foundation to try and build something competitive and sustainable. But you and that's and that's all you can hope for. Yeah, I just it's so you bad. didn't because you didn't take Luca. You didn't you didn't get Luca. You got Trey, who's who's swimming in the same pool as Luca in terms of All Star status and and you know what your profile might be. Theoretically, two years in. But as you mentioned, Luca projects as as a player who reaches a different level of success than what Trey projects right now, based on the fact that Luca's six eight and Trey is five eleven, six feet tall. And that's that's just the bottom line. Five eleven, by the way. See yeah. that person and up close, I don't buy the six feet stuff. I really yeah. don't. I'll tell you, but I mean I'm listen, I was I'm, I wasn't a fan of the trade at the time based on the conversations I had with people that have scouted overseas. I would have been much more comfortable with the Hawks taking Luca and, and betting on Luca being the star that he's been in Dallas here in Atlanta. And, and that just wasn't their choice. Yep. And uh, it's going to bother me forever. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it's just reddish was coming on. Um, before everything went to a standstill, but DeAndre Hunter, when you watch him, a lot of Andrew Wiggins vibes where you just, you forget he's on the court for 25 minutes at a time. He's someone you traded up in the lottery for, <laughs> which is a huge thing. Like you traded back from Luca and then you traded up for DeAndre Hunter. It's just, um, it, not great. Um, but I think those two have to hit because if those two don't become max players, then you have to fire in clean house because that's what you have. That's what you've sold fans on is, we traded back, we got Trey, and then we got this other asset, this other lottery pick, and then we traded up for another one. Like, those guys have to hit. Because if they don't, like, Herter, if he hits, that's just luck. You got lucky there. Because late first round, whatever. Um, John Collins, not a lottery guy. Like, you've developed him really well. Like, that's a good, it's a win for your organization. But you tied yourself to the triumvirate of Hunter, Reddish, and Trey. And if at least two of those three did not become multi-time all-stars and you have to clean house and you're losing your job. But you know how you could have avoided all of that? Just drafting Luka. Because you know who would have a job for 10 years? Um, the team that employs Luka Doncic to be their franchise player for 10 years. Sling did it to himself. You played yourself. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> We're going to see. I mean, we'll, hopefully I'll be around in 10 years Same. to uh, to revisit <laughs> it. You know, I'm going to be very glad to, to have been into my third decade covering the league if I get to see it. So that'd be great. Um, well, I hope so. I'm all for it. I'm I, all for it. I enjoy the hang time back <laughs> in the day. I've been reading and listening to you for years, Seku, and I appreciate you taking the time and making your way on this podcast. It means a lot. Um, what can we check out from you this week on uh, either the uh, video front, online front, the writing front, anything uh, you want no, to share? No, man. I am, I am neck deep in um, uh, a, a labor of absolute agony. I'm trying to come up with a 10-part outline for a Last Dance-style documentary in 22 years about one LeBron James. It'll be on mm -hmm. NBA.com NBA on Wednesday. Um, I'll be podcasting later this week with a special guest to be determined, but we've had some great guests here recently, the most recent being Damian Lee, um, Steph Curry's brother-in-law from the Golden State Warriors, whose mom 
and aunt are registered nurses. So they're out oh. on the front lines of the COVID-19 battle. It's really interesting conversation with him. Guy who's had an unbelievable story finding his way to the league. Um, but that's on the podcast on dot com, as I mentioned, it'll be the the LeBron last dance theory that I'm that I've been rattling around my brain for the past few weeks. Um and until we get our regular or whatever our new normal is, it's it's lighter than usual. So unfortunately, you know, you hear me babbling on people's podcasts more probably than normal. Um, and I appreciate you inviting me. I, I love to talk and I always enjoy it more when somebody else is the louder, more rambunctious and maybe more rational person on the podcast than myself. Go do that. <laughs> keep up the great work. Um, I am excited for the the NBA season to come back soon, hopefully safely. Um, and that way we ha- we have content and we have more stuff to talk about because um, you know it's great watching basketball, and I miss watching basketball. It uh, it drives me nuts. The NBA is the best, and uh, it looks like we're inching closer and closer. I hope um, so. Yep. All right. Well, I appreciate it, Seiku. We'll have to do this again soon. All right, Chase. Thank you, man. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. Thank you uh, to the wonderful guests for coming on today's show. Thank you uh, to my wonderful listeners for listening to today's episode. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, If you like today's episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple. It would be great. Um, It helps the show continue to grow, and I would very much appreciate it. Uh, You can also support the show on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash chasethomaswriter. for as little as $5 a month, it helps the show keep the lights on. So that would be a great help to me as well. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas. You could go to ChaseThomasPodcast.com, which has all of my stuff, all my episodes ever, um, links to everything that you need, um, and all of my writing that uh, I'm doing fairly often these days um, on the NFL, on NBA, on college football, on pro wrestling. I write about everything. I write a lot. Um, so go read me on that front so if you're not tired of listening to me you can also read me um so that's awesome but uh i think that's enough self-promotion from me for one episode uh i hope you continue listening that would be great and uh i will talk to you all again very soon thanks guys nicely done nephew Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.